Welcome to the World War I Centennial News Podcast, episode number 124. It's about then, what was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War I. And it's about now, how World War I is being remembered and commemorated, written about and discussed, learned and taught. But most important, it's about why and how we'll never let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. This week on the show, we're going to open with a look at an aspect of World War I resulting from one of the many failings at the Paris Peace Conference and leading to issues that fill our current news and events. In a related post, Mike Schuster talks about the fate of the Ottoman Empire. Dr. Edward Lengel continues his top 10 selections of published personal accounts from World War I. This week, his pick number four, Edmund Blunden's Undertones of War. Dr. Kate Clark LeMay tells us about a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, Votes for Women. And Mary Jane Kenick joins us to talk about a local doughboy remembrance in Erie, Pennsylvania. All on this episode of World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, the General Motors Foundation, as well as the good people of Walmart. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. We call World War I the war that changed the world, and it did in countless ways. But for those who've called it the Forgotten War, it's always been a source of amazement to me personally how much of World War I and its aftermath is present in our lives today. For example, the Middle East region is in the news and is part of our lives all the time. It affects us profoundly today, not only politically, but also at the considerable loss of our sons, daughters, and national treasure. Syria, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Jordan, Palestine, Turkey, and many other names that we hear in the news nearly every day. Well, a hundred years ago, we might have simply said Ottoman, Persia, and Mesopotamia. With that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and look at the Middle East a hundred years ago in the war whose aftermath is still changing our world today. We've gone back a hundred years and a bit more with a report from podcast researcher and writer David Kramer. A major challenge, and one that frustrates President Wilson time after time, comes from the wartime agreements between nations, oftentimes secret, that were short-term war needs that created long-term headaches. Let's take a look at the Middle East. A prime example of what we're talking about is a 1916 secret agreement between the United Kingdom and France called the Sykes-Picot Treaty. Under Sykes-Picot, France and England decide that France is going to control the Syrian coast and much of today's Lebanon. Meanwhile, England takes control of a large part of what was then called Mesopotamia. That's today's southern and central Iraq. 
Palestine is to become home to both Palestinians and Jews, and by French and British agreement, will be under international control. In addition, the inland portion of Syria, northern Iraq, and Jordan are to be given some limited local rule, but will be under the watchful eye of the French. Meanwhile, regardless of that treaty, as World War I wraps up, Britain, who already holds a lot of influence in Persia, today's Iran, decides to seize a big hunk of the new oil-producing region of Mesopotamia for their kingdom. Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, now believes not only that the French shouldn't have oversight of such a large region, but that the international control of Palestine isn't really necessary. Britain can handle that on her own. In other words, Sykes-Picot's trashed. The British now propose only a small area go to France and honors the 1917 pledge to reserve an area for the Jewish homeland in Palestine. Greece is at the center of two important secret agreements. The Allies reward Italy for entering the war on their side by giving them an island group currently belonging to Greece. At the same time, Greece is to gain the largely Greek-populated region of Smyrna on the Turkish coast. The big three aren't worried about what Turkey thinks. After all, the Turks had been a large part of the Ottoman Empire and so had sided with the enemy. And although a hundred years later there would be a national denial, now in 1919, everyone is keenly aware that the Turks had an ethnic cleansing, also known as a genocide, of Armenians, Kurds, and other non-Turks during 1915 and 1916. So in early March of 1919, the Supreme Council at the Paris Peace Conference, consisting of the U.S., France, the United Kingdom, Italy, and Japan, announces the complete elimination of the Ottoman Empire. And while the plan does provide for a new nation called Turkey, for the region, the Turks should be happy with that and expect no other favors. <laughs> but they did. Like Germany, Turkey is deeply disappointed with the final outcome of the treaty and its virtual abandonment of the Wilson 14 points. Greece and Turkey will meet on the battlefield just in 1920 to attempt to resolve matters left unresolved in Paris. Then there's the Arab lands, which stand in part with the old Ottoman Empire and partly beyond. King Faisal bin Hussein of the Syrian region heads to Paris with T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, to seek Arab independence. Faisal, with his father, the Sharif of Mecca on the Arabian Peninsula, and his brothers have helped to forge the alliance with Britain through Lawrence during the war. But France's Prime Minister Clemenceau considers their demands as absurdly extravagant. At about the same time that Faisal is petitioning the Supreme Council in Paris, Chaim Weissman and other Zionists plead their case for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Again, secret promises made during the war may have seemed necessary at the time, but now return to haunt the British. <laughs> Just imagine this. They had promised a homeland to the Jews in a region currently occupied by the very people they were simultaneously urging to revolt against the Ottomans. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were also dangling a carrot in front of the Arabs for post-war independence within the very same region. <laughs> it's a giant mess we're still trying to unravel today.
The New York Times in March of 1919 states, It is clear that Wilson is expected to be the umpire. So Wilson suggests a fact-finding mission to get a real feel for the actual conditions and attitudes in the Middle East region. The findings? Well, the mission contradicts a lot of what the British and French claim about the local desires. Ultimately, the Treaty of Versailles just doesn't deal with it. Greece and Turkey are at war within a year. No independent states are created. The best that local petitioners receive is the mandate system, which means a small degree of autonomy with overall control held by one of the colonial powers, each with its own designated region or mandate. When you really look at it, though the term used is mandate, it's really just a new form of colonialism leaving the local nationalists in the region with really little choice but to rebel and fight to gain their full independence. And as far as Palestine, it's left to the League of Nations to finally approve the British mandate for Palestine in July of 1922. Britain divides it into two parts. Palestine west of the Jordan River and Transjordan, now known as Jordan, to the east. King Faisal's brother, Abdullah, is appointed the ruler in Transjordan, and his descendants continue that to now. So, here we are today, 100 years later, still dealing with the fallout of that empirical hubris from the war that changed and shaped the world today. We're going to continue our theme of the Middle East with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, as we just heard, abandoning Wilson's 14-point vision of peace for neo-imperialism in the Middle East leaves a real mess, and as your post reinforces, a mess that's just not being addressed effectively in Paris. That's right, Teo. So our headlines today read, The Fate of the Ottoman Empire, What to Do with Its Myriad Peoples, Who Will Pay for It All, Is the U.S. the Answer? Questions Abound. Far away from the peace negotiations in Paris at the southeast tip of Europe, another great city is lamenting the past and thinking uneasily about the future. So reports historian Margaret Macmillan. Byzantium to the Greeks and Romans, Constantinople to the peacemakers, Istanbul to the Turks. Now the Ottoman Empire in its turn is on a downward path. The city, she reports, was crammed with refugees and soldiers from the defeated armies, short of fuel food, and hope. Their fate, indeed that of the whole empire, appeared to depend on the Paris Peace Conference. The Ottoman Empire made the colossal mistake of siding with Germany in the war and opposing the Allied powers. It was a gamble that failed, writes Macmillan. The Ottoman Empire fought astonishingly bravely given its relative weakness in the Middle East, then known as Mesopotamia, and at Gallipoli, Turkish soldiers humiliated the Allies who had expected quick victories. By 1918, Ottoman luck had run out. Their empire had gone piecemeal before the war. Now it melted like snow. Macmillan elaborates, The Arab territories had gone from Mesopotamia to Palestine, from Syria down to the Arabian Peninsula. On the eastern end of the Black Sea, subject peoples, Armenians, Georgians, Azerbaijanis, Kurds, struggled to establish new states in the borderlands with Russia. General attitude among Turks reported an American diplomat as one of hopelessness, waiting the outcome of the peace conference. 
Like so many other peoples, they hoped the Americans would rescue them. Self-determination might salvage at least the Turkish-speaking areas of the East. In Constantinople, intellectuals founded a Wilsonian Principles Society. The Ottoman Turks sign a separate and early armistice with the British, who quickly start peace negotiations. The Paris peacemakers did not get around to the Ottoman Empire until late January 1919, and then it was only in the course of that difficult discussion over mandates for the former German colonies. Because the Turks had been so bad at governing their subject peoples, Macmillan writes, they should lose control of all their Arab territories, Syria, Mesopotamia, Palestine, and Arabia itself. Since the Arabs were civilized but not yet organized, they would need outside guidance. The Ottomans should lose territory on their northeast frontier. And since they had behaved appallingly to the Armenians, clearly an Armenian state should come into existence, probably as a mandate of an outside power. Further, there might have to be a Kurdistan south of Armenia. The other important goal for British PM Lloyd George was to keep all the various groups from attacking each other. This was not a responsibility Britain wanted. As Lloyd George pointed out, the Allies had over a million troops scattered across the Ottoman Empire, and Britain was paying for the lot. If they kept them there until they had made peace with Turkey, and until the League of Nations had been constituted and started business, and until it was able to dispose of this question, the expense would be something enormous. The solution, get the U.S. to share the burden. Not a popular view in the United States. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project these days, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Changing the topic from the Middle East, in our Historian's Corner, regular contributor, historian Dr. Edward Lengel, continues his series of posts that profile his top 10 selections from the many, many hundreds of published personal accounts of World War I. This week, Ed profiles author Edmund Blunden's Undertones of War. For the most sensitive of souls, trench warfare reserved exquisite torments. Englishman Edmund Blunden's senses reeled at the tragedy of warfare. Try as he might, he could not dull his feelings to the withering impact of shells and poison gas on both humankind and nature. Eventually, he gave up his hopeless attempts to turn away and embraced the role of observer. The personal cost was high, but Blunden's private sufferings endowed a priceless legacy to humanity. His poetry, unfairly ignored in comparison to that of fellow Englishmen Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, is some of the best to emerge from the cauldron of war. His memoir, Undertones of War, published in 1928, is one of the finest works of literature of the 20th century. Undertones of War stands number four on my list of the top 10 personal accounts of World War I, but it could just as easily stand number one. Born in 1896 in London, but a devotee of the English countryside, Edmund Blunden was recognized as an up-and-coming poet when still a teenager and won a full scholarship to Oxford in 1914. The following year, however, he was one of many thousands of young Englishmen to volunteer for service with a so-called Kitchener's Army that replaced the small professional British Army of 1914. Appointed a second lieutenant in the 11th Royal Sussex Regiment, he spent the summer of 1915 to the early spring of 1916 in training in England, where he inhaled deeply the rapturous scent of English rural life and produced volumes of poetry. 
the contrast with what he was to experience at the front could not have been greater. In May 1916, Edmund Blendon's regiment was posted to France, where he participated that summer and fall in the Battle of the Somme. Though soft-spoken and diminutive, his bravery was unquestionable, and in November he was awarded the Military Cross. Afterwards, the battles flowed in quick succession. From the end of 1916 to the end of 1917, he was sent to fight at several locations in Flanders and France, culminating on July 31, 1917, in the horrific Battle of Passchendaele. Blunden was gassed twice, but returned to service out of a sense of duty to his men. During these experiences, Blunden dwelt especially on war's impact on the French countryside and, poignantly, life's persistent attempts to reassert itself in the form of a songbird over the trenches or a flower in no man's land. Blunden was sent back to England for recuperation in the spring of 1918, and his several attempts to return to the front were denied. Unable thus to find catharsis at the front, he sought refuge in art. His writing, indeed, is to my mind the literary equivalent of the music of a fellow English veteran, the composer Rafe von Williams, who sought through his work to express the crashing contrast between pastoral beauty and the ravages of war. Consider the understatement and yet outstanding power of this passage from Undertones of War. Climbing the dirty little road over the steep bank, one immediately entered the land of despair. Bodies, bodies, and their useless gear heaped the gross waste ground. The slimy road was soon only a mud track, which passed a whitish tumulus of ruin with lurking entrances, some spikes that had been pine trees, a bricked cellar or two, and died out. The shell holes were mostly small lakes of what was no doubt merely rusty water, but had a red and foul semblance of blood. Paths glistened weakly from tenable point to point. Of the dead, one was conspicuous. He was a Scottish soldier and was kneeling, facing east, so that one could scarcely credit death in him. He was seen at some little distance from the usual tracks, and no one had much time in Thiepval just then for sightseeing or burying. Death could not kneel so, I thought, and approaching, I ascertained with a sudden shriveling of spirit that death could and did. To the very end of his life in 1974, Edmund Blunden carried the war in his heart, day and night. He observed, internalized, processed, and passed it on to posterity, neither preaching nor explaining, but offering a simple eyewitness testimony to its tragic immensity. Dr. Edward Langle's blog is called A Storyteller Hiking Through History. It's filled with first-person perspectives and accounts that provide a nuanced insight into the era. We have links for you to Ed's post and his author's website in the podcast notes. Okay, it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I is being remembered and commemorated today. Here is where we spotlight the surprisingly numerous commemoration activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. In commission news, 
the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission has been deeply immersed this Memorial Day week and weekend, partnering with the U.S. Sea Services, the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard to bring a World War I theme to New York's Fleet Week. We've held and participated in amazing events, many of which we've previewed for you on the show. Well, now they've happened. I've been curating the pictures for our social media sites, at WW1CC for Twitter and Instagram, and WW1Centennial on Facebook. There's way too much to talk about, so let me just give you one of my favorite moments. It's a picture of a young lady, probably a girl in the eighth grade, being introduced to this mysterious device called a typewriter by a World War I Navy yeomanette as our girl captures the moment on her smartphone. Well, okay, I want to give a shout out to the commission team, the amazing volunteers, the living historians, the 369th experience, the Hello Girls musical performers, Sawyer the Sea Dog, the Navy History and Heritage Command, and all the sailors, Marines, and Coast Guard participants, all of whom have been giving it their all in New York to bring World War I awareness to the region. And we have links for you in the podcast notes. We're coming up on another very important centennial, in large part affected by the war that changed the world. That's the centennial of the Americans' women's right to vote. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be covering this in much more detail. But to get us going, today we're joined by Dr. Kate Clark LeMay, a historian at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, where she directs its scholarly center portal. The gallery has a new exhibit that opened on March 29th that will run through the end of the year called Votes for Women, a Portrait of Persistence. The description includes, The exhibit will outline the more than 80-year movement for women to obtain the right to vote as a part of the larger struggle for equality that continues through the 1965 Civil Rights Act and arguably lingers today. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Kate, before we get into the exhibit itself, could you give us a quick profile of the National Portrait Gallery, its history, mission, what it offers the public? The National Portrait Gallery endeavors to tell the story of America through biography. So we are a history museum and an art museum. And in that sense, we use portraiture to demonstrate the impact of individuals in American history. On to the exhibit. Votes for Women, A Portrait of Persistence. Can you tell us about it and how it came to be? Sure, I'd be happy to. I proposed this exhibition way back in late 2015. So I was working on it for almost four years. And I knew that the 2020 centennial anniversary of the 19th Amendment was a golden opportunity to really focus on American women's history and put it in the spotlight in a way that has not been done before. So I jumped at the chance to put this exhibition together, and it has 124 objects, and it features more than 60 portraits, so more than 60 different women. Can you tell us about some of them? I'd be happy to. You might have heard of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but the idea that the women's movement started in 1848 is really a myth because these two women didn't even know each other in 1848. They only met in 1851, which is not to say that 1848 convention in Seneca Falls is not important because it is. It was the first national meeting of women in America. But the suffrage movement 
started long before that decade. And really, different historians have different ideas about when it started. Some backdate it to the 18th century. I decided to start the exhibition well before 1848, in fact, with 1832, because I wanted to look at the abolitionist influence on the American women's suffrage movement. In that case, I was able to really hone in on several biographies of African-American women, including Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who was a great poet and essayist, and also Sarah Parker Ramones, who also was an author and who was a precursor to Rosa Parks. She successfully sued a Boston theater for ejecting her for being African-American. So there's a lot of different biographies in the exhibition, and they're not necessarily limited to strict single-issue focus, like suffrage. These were women of the 19th century that were advocating for all sorts of different rights. The American women's suffrage movement didn't get pinpointed to focusing on suffrage until after the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870. The women's suffrage movement in the U.S. and World War I intersected in time, and President Wilson's attitude towards it evolved over that war period. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. The women suffragists were picketing the White House. They were the first political group to do so. They were nonviolent, but they were standing in front of the White House. And at first, in 1917, in January, you know, he thought it was sort of cute and asked them in for coffee. And then later in April, the United States, of course, enters World War I. And the suffragists start to take Wilson's own words and put them on banners and accuse him of being a hypocrite because he's ostensibly fighting for democracy globally, and yet he's not enfranchising half the population of the United States. And so it was a very effective way to agitate and to make headlines and to upset people who were patriots and who considered any attack on the president was almost like treason. And that is when the suffragists actually start to get arrested and put into jail and the violence continues and escalates. I ask this question a lot. As you came into the project and now that the exhibit's opening, is there a single lesson learned or story that sticks out for you? Perhaps one that surprised you? I love this question and thank you for it. I think that as a historian who now studies women's history, I was surprised to see that the French government recognized three female physicians who served in France during World War One. They were American and the French government recognized them with the Croix de Guerre, which is the highest recognition the French government offers for military service. And so they were cited for their heroism and bravery under bombardment. In your opinion, what's the most important thing our listeners should remember about this struggle for women to get the vote at large? I think that it's really a portrait of persistence, which is the title of the exhibition. It's a lesson learned in how to persevere. And if you care about something that you want to change, part of it is to make sure that you act and organize. And you can look at the historical record to see all these really interesting stories, all these really interesting women, a variety of backgrounds who did this to achieve the 19th Amendment. Now, this movement was a global movement. It happened everywhere. How would you characterize the interaction of the suffrage movement in America with that of other places? Sure. American suffragists were looking to women of New Zealand who were enfranchised, given the right to vote in 1893, and, of course, to the British suffragettes 
who were enfranchised in 1918 and who were using much more militant tactics that included violence to achieve their goal. Even though it was only in 1920 that the United States ratified the 19th Amendment, American women, I believe, are among the first, if you will. Because if you think about a country like France, they didn't even enfranchise women until 1946. It took a second world war to catalyze their society to change and give women the right to vote. So there's a long history about women's suffrage globally, and that in itself deserves its own exhibition for sure. Okay, thank you for coming in and for telling us about the exhibit and the story behind it. My pleasure. Thank you, Teo. Dr. Kate Clark LeMay is a historian at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, and the exhibit is called Votes for Women, A Portrait of Persistence. It opened on March 29th and runs through January 5th, 2020. We have links for you in the podcast notes. For Remembering Veterans, we're taking a trip to the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. One of the interesting things about Pennsylvania is that it's bordered by two great bodies of water, on the east by the Atlantic and on the west by Lake Erie. Now, this week's story is not about Philadelphia. Rather, it's about Erie on the shores of the city's namesake. With us is the chair of the Erie County World War I Centennial Committee, Mary Jane Kennig, who's going to tell us about a new Doughboy commemoration in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mary Jane, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Mary Jane, could you please tell us about the Erie County World War I Centennial Committee and what you've been up to during the centennial period? Yes. Last August, my husband and I took our second World War I research trip to France, and we were energized by the group and several members of the World War I Centennial Commission who were with us, and we knew we wanted to do more in Erie County. So we formed an informal group of interested, like-minded people and went on to create some projects. Well, what are some of the projects? The first thing we did was cooperate with the Bells of Peace. We asked churches in Erie County, businesses, fire departments to ring their bells or use their sirens on the 100th anniversary of the armistice in November. We also on that day held a ceremony in conjunction with the Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 470 to commemorate the armistice and read the names of those from Erie County who made the ultimate sacrifice, something that had never been done before. In December, with the Daughters of the American Revolution, we joined with the Reese Across America and placed Reese on area World War I monuments and the graves of some of the area World War I soldiers. In April, we provided World War I Wednesdays, a series of five lectures at a lecture house in Erie, We knew that 297,000 Pennsylvanians heeded the call to join the military in World War I. We believe Erie County sent over 3,000 to war and 190 died. And we wanted to recognize those who served in World War I from Erie County. And is that the story behind the new Doughboy Memorial? Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. What's it like? How did you do your research for the marker? And, you know, just describe it for us. Well, from the beginning, we knew we wanted to do something significant. And so three of our committee members researched AGO cards, death records, Ancestry.com, and other pension records, local resources, and found the names of 190. Those are verified. And we commissioned a memorial, which is cast aluminum, and it's about the size of four foot by three feet large. And it's been placed, but we're having the dedication ceremony on Saturday. 
it lists the 190 names of the men who made the ultimate sacrifice in World War I in France. And it's going into a stadium, I understand. Well, actually, this is what happened. Our original intent was to put a wall plaque listing the names on the side of the Erie Veterans Memorial Stadium, which was built in 1924 in honor of those who served in World War I from Erie County. But it was going to be too heavy. So then we went to two memorial plaques, one that is placed across from the stadium in what is called Erie County Veterans Memorial Park. There are World War II Memorial, Korean War Memorial, Purple Heart Memorial, and a Vietnam Memorial. And it was so fitting to also have the World War I Memorial now placed. We also developed this plaque that I was talking about, a wall plaque that only says Erie Veterans Memorial Stadium, originally dedicated to those who served in World War I. And that's placed on the side of the stadium in the city of Erie so that everyone now remembers that it's originally dedicated to those of World War I. That's a great idea. You know, we have a memorial stadium here in Los Angeles that's been the site of two Olympics, and no one actually ever talked about it being a World War I memorial until the folks from the California Centennial Committee started to put some focus on it. The heritage of World War I really lives strongly locally, and your project points to the importance of that. So if a community wanted to undertake a project like yours, what advice would you give them? Well, I think first you would want to find like-minded people, including local veterans organizations. We were very lucky with our media contacts locally, as well as government officials who were also on board with our plans. We found so many stories, and we were able to reach out to the citizens of Erie County and remind them that Erie County remembers World War I. And I think I would just encourage others to look around their own city or town and see if there are any monuments or markers and go from there to help their fellow citizens remember that we have veterans and service members who served not only recently, but in World War One, and this is the centennial. It just all fell into place for us. Well, Mary Jane, I love your story, and thank you both for the work that you're doing, and more than anything, for keeping faith with our Doughboys, and also for coming in and telling us the story. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Jane Kennig is the chair of the Erie County World War One Centennial Committee, and we have links for you in the podcast notes. This week, for articles and posts, here are some of the select highlights you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Now, if you don't subscribe to The Dispatch, let me explain it briefly. Every week, the newsletter provides single-paragraph synopses from the various articles and stories available on the internet about World War I then and now. It's a really fast and easy way to scan for interesting World War I-related information, it's published by my associate and commission staffer, Chris Christopher. Here are some of the highlights for this week. The first story. 100 years ago, Hello Girl, Grace Banker, receives Distinguished Service Medal. 100 years ago in late May, Hello Girl, Grace Banker, received the Distinguished Service Medal for her service. Quote, for exceptional ability as chief operator in the Signal Corps Exchange at General Headquarters, American Expeditionary Forces, and later in a similar capacity at First Army Headquarters. 
Banker's granddaughter, Carolyn Timby, takes a look back at Banker's remarkable military service in World War I. Next story. The National World War I Memorial in D.C. Groundbreaking envisioned for this fall. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspaper this week published an update on the progress of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. The article noted that supporters of the new World War I Memorial say that they're hopeful that they can break ground this fall. Quote, We're getting close to wrapping up the design. We're about 75% of the way through, said Joseph Weishar, the project's architect and a Fayetteville native. It's really coming along. The next story. In Search of Romans, Lost Boys of World War I. Roman Catholic High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was founded by Irish immigrant Thomas Cahill in 1890 and was the first free Catholic high school in the country. By the time the United States entered the war in 1917, the school was already more than a quarter century old. School alumni, including Chris Gibbons, had long assumed that there was no commemorative plaque for World War I because no Roman alumni had died in that war. However, as Gibbons' interest and knowledge of the Great War deepened, he began to doubt this assumption. After he read James Nelson's book, The Remains of Company D, Gibbons resolved to finally learn the truth regarding World War I and the Lost Boys from Roman Catholic High School. Filmmaker Daniel Bernardi and his historical documentary series for the National Cemetery Administration. Daniel Bernardi is a remarkable young filmmaker and a really busy guy. He's a Navy reservist, a professor of film at San Francisco State University, and he manages a film production company specializing in documentaries. Daniel's current project as a filmmaker is a series of pieces for the National Cemetery Administration, the NCA, which manages the nation's veteran cemeteries. Daniel's biggest film in the series, the World War I-themed War to End All Wars, premiered recently at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City and screened there during the Memorial Weekend. Fort Des Moines exhibit honors African-American men who served in World War I. Now, you've heard about Fort Des Moines on the podcast. This article sets it up. Over a century ago, the first African-American officers trained at Fort Des Moines. On May 4, local members of the Phi Beta Sigma fraternity unveiled a display honoring members who received their commissions there in 1917 and served during World War I. The Fort Des Moines training camp was the first and only established camp for African-American officers and non-commissioned candidates. What started as a simple question, did Phi Beta Sigma have any members who were commissioned there, turned into a three-year project that uncovered 20 men from the fraternity who served in World War I, including nine who received their commissions at Fort Des Moines. And our last story... Gone, but no longer forgotten. At long last, these four World War I veterans receive a memorial service. The cremated remains of four World War I veterans were transported in a horse-drawn carriage accompanied by Patriot Guard riders and a police escort to their final resting place at the Rosenberg National Cemetery Annex in Douglas County, Oregon last week. 
the veterans' remains were forgotten on a shelf at a local mortuary before being rediscovered through the painstaking research of Douglas County Veterans Forum member Carol Hunt and retired Rosenberg National Cemetery technician G.G. Grimes Shannon. What the two women found was one of the largest groups of unclaimed remains ever to have been recovered in the state. Now that's just a little of what you get if you subscribe to the weekly Dispatch newsletter. It offers a quick read of short paragraphs that act as an easy guide to great World War I news and information from both then and now. You can subscribe to the Weekly Dispatch at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 124 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, crew, and supporters, including Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Lengel, historian, author, and lecturer, Dr. Kate Clark LeMay of the National Portrait Gallery, Mary Jane Kennig from the Erie County, Pennsylvania World War I Centennial Committee, and thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show, Dave Kramer and J.L. Michaud for research and script support, and I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Star Foundation, the General Motors Foundation, and the good people of Walmart. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places that you get your podcasts and even using your smart speakers by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for listening. And don't forget... Keep this story alive for America by helping to build the memorial. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999. So Kaiserville at warfare we are new. If you think now the Yankee drive is true, well tell that to the Marines. Those deviling hounds who know what fighting means. We are going to have six million men in line. Kaiser Bill, if you don't think they will cross the Rhine, tell that to the Marines. The first to fight on all the fighting scenes. If you think the Yanks won't whirl in, right straight into Berlin, tell that to the Marines. Thank you for listening.
So long. <laughs>